Welcome to another episode of Try iPod, the MD PhD admissions podcast. I'm your host, Caroline Fulford, and with me today is our guest, Dr. Sarah Aaron. Welcome. Thank you. So, Dr. Aaron, what do you do and why? So, I am a Mohs micrographic surgeon. I specialize in the care of skin cancer. And I'm a dermatologist here at University of California in San Francisco, and I run a clinical program and a research lab here. You're an alum who makes a pretty good example of uh, someone who is continuing to work in a sort of blended uh, setting of both seeing patients and doing research. That's right. I'm the textbook example of what we intend for our MD-PhD students to become. (laughs) I do about 50% clinical time, 50% research, um, and my research is very focused on the clinical diseases I see um, in my practice, so primarily non-melanoma skin cancer, and particularly skin cancer in patients who are immunosuppressed. And it's been really fun for me because I get to go back and forth between the two worlds on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I I think that that's that's definitely what um, one imagines uh, one would do with the MD-PhD degree, um, especially since, how do you see patients, uh, you said about 50-50, so you probably feel as if you're like, you, you see symptoms and then turn around and study those symptoms, right? That's the hope. Um, and and when, I, when I started on the faculty um, at UCSF after finishing my postdoc, I was more 25, 75. I saw patients one day a week, and I spent the rest of my time in the lab. Um, and as my career has developed, I'm now about eight years out of my fellowship. Um, I've started taking on a little bit more clinical responsibility, but I also have the benefit of a larger lab with more employees, and so I'm able to balance that time a little bit more equally and still be productive in the lab. What did you? What experiences did you bring? Did you bring with you as a first year? or when you were considering applying to become an MD-PhD student? So I came into the MD-PhD program primarily with the background of someone who has a terrible ability to make decisions. I loved doing research as an undergraduate, um, and I loved, well, I didn't love my pre-med coursework, but I loved the idea of becoming a doctor and, and involving myself in direct patient care. And I really would not have been able to choose one career over the other. Um, I had uh, I had worked in a lab um, for a few years over the summer and then done a summer undergraduate research program, much like the Gateways program that the TRI-I has, which is just called the SERP, and it was at NYU. Um, and it was a program not specifically for minority students, but for students interested in doing a combined MD and PhD. So I, I had done that summer program, worked in a lab, um, shadowed a surgeon and had a pretty good idea that both of these things seemed seemed appealing to me. And then I went into the TRI-I program actually to do my PhD in the same lab where I had worked over the summer um, with David Ho at the Aaron Diamond AIDS Research Center. So I was, I was pretty excited coming in. Um, I got a quick punch in the gut that medical school is more vocational than graduate school. Um, I was kind of raised and trained to think critically about problems um, rather than to sit and memorize bundles of facts. And so the first two years of medical school were a little bit rough for me um, because it wasn't, it's not my natural, um, natural ability to sit down and study a book of um, microbial pathogens and commit them to memory. 
Um, so during that time, the Tri-I was kind of my, my home base or my homeroom. It, it was my peer group among the medical students. Um, and some of the folks who were in the Tri-I program with me are still wonderful friends today. And in fact, I wound up marrying one of them. <laughs> um, so I think, I think having that, that group of students who were similarly kind of scientifically motivated and, and critical thinkers, helped get me through the the drudgery of the first two years of medical school. It's interesting you use the word uh, vocation or vocational. Um, Would you say that applies to the uh, sort of psychological, emotional element to uh, the difference between clinical work and research work? I think it's, it's hard to both inspire young people and also be realistic about how difficult the training course is. Um, The truth of the matter is to become a physician, you have to go through medical school, and medical school is incredibly hard. Um, And in order to reach the point in your career where I am now, um, where you can ask questions and think critically and and debate the standard of care, you actually have to learn what that standard of care is. Um, And there's a huge body of knowledge that you have to master before you can get to that point. Um, and you have to know a lot about everything, whether or not you think you're going to go into that specific field of medicine. It turns out all of that information becomes useful um, later in life. In graduate school, it's a little bit different. Um, the the struggles are different. You you have certainly more flexibility in what you study and who you choose to work with um, in the hours that you spend working. I mean, you probably spend the same number of hours struggling with difficult questions, but I always used to say that in in graduate school or during my postdoc, if I had a problem I couldn't solve, I could walk away and get a cup of coffee. And in medicine, when I was hitting a problem I couldn't solve, that was the time I needed to be there the most. Um, so it's a very different approach to the day. And that's why I enjoy having both. Um, I think in medicine, the immediate rewards don't come until later. They don't come until third or fourth year when you're actually working with patients. Um, and then, of course, you're going through a different type of hazing, which is the learning to become a young doctor on a team and learning to operate in a hospital environment. Um, but that's why I like to see many medical schools, um, including uh, Cornell, including UCSF, where I am, um, integrating more direct patient interaction into the first year or two. Um, I think that's that's important for medical students in keeping their their morale up and giving them the um, inspiration and the motivation to continue with the, the tough book studies. So yeah, I think it's really it's really valuable what you say about um, the way that uh, clinical versus research work is different in terms of the day uh, and how you encounter the, the greatest problems in the course of just the physical being there in the course of, the, of your workday. Going back to your uh, experiences as a Tri-I student, how did you deal with the transition that you'd have to make um, between the clinical studying, the first initial years of clinical study and uh, the lab work? Uh, you mentioned that you struggled a bit with the, the medical education, not so much the research. I think the hardest transition for me was from a senior in college to a first-year medical student because I really went from being someone who studied the pre-med courses but also took a lot of electives in other areas. I spent a lot of time in the you know, creative and performing arts. I had a lot of friends who did different things. 
And then I went to start medical school. And at the very beginning, I was in a class with 100 people who were all taking the same class as me. And they were all focused on the same thing as me, which was medicine. And so the, the dinner party conversations became much more restricted. And of course, it's a very intense time. It's a little bit like boot camp. And then over time, as my classmates got to know each other, we then started to learn what other things made us tick. And, and actually, I had, I had a couple of medical school classmates who formed a band and we used to play, um, we used to play at this manky bar on the Upper East Side called the Raccoon Lodge. And we used to play at, at, um, happy hours at the Olin Lounge. And one time, one time we played on a, on a medical school circle line cruise that went around the, the city. That's so we awesome. kind of did those fun things. Um, and then I participated in the class show where we roasted the faculty and, and that kind of outlet was really fun. I think for all of us in our class. Um, when I transitioned to the PhD, I think one of the things that made that transition feel smooth to me was that, um, I was very close with my MD PhD colleagues. You know, we'd had these weekly, um, networking lunches during the course of the first year. We, we had, at that time, we had our own journal club and some of them were my, my very good friends. And so we were all kind of going through that transition together. Um, and then the other thing that was really important in making that first transition was I, wisely or luckily chose a lab and a mentor that was excited to have me. Um, and, and I think choosing your mentor as a graduate student is, is really critical. It's one of the most important things you do. And, and you want to choose not only a project that appeals to you, but also a mentor and an environment that, that are committed to training you because the, the end result of your graduate studies is not necessarily going to be the scientific discovery that you make and publish, but also you're learning how to be a scientist and how to work on a team like that. So I was really, really lucky um, when I joined David Ho's lab um, at the Aaron Diamond that the postdocs were used to working with students, both graduate, medical, and MD-PhD. Um, there was a framework in which uh, students in the lab would welcome on new people, um, piggyback onto projects while we learned new methods um, and kind of got some immediate productivity, even while we were trying to figure out what our own thesis project was going to be. Um, and, and there was a, a really welcoming environment. Um, I've, I've worked in a lot of labs at this point, and not every lab welcomes students in the same way. You know, it's, it's very different to show up on your first day and have a postdoc say, I want you to come and work on this project with me while you figure things out than to have your lab say, oh, who are you? What are you doing here? Mm. Um, and so you really want to look for a place that that is encouraging in that way. And then the PhD years go up and down. You know, you have to kind of strip it all away and figure out what you're doing and learn how to do it and suffer the failures and then finally get your papers published and get your thesis written. And by that time, you're so enthusiastic to achieve the milestone and go back to the third year of medical school, you don't realize what you have coming down the pike at you. Well, so, yeah, it's interesting that you say that the support you felt was more on sort of an individual basis um, in terms of the relationships that you managed to forge professionally uh, in your lab. Could you speak at all to the support you might have gotten from like the community at large or the sort of institutional support um, from TriI during that those periods of, you know, deciding what you were going to do or deciding what you're going to specialize in, um, that sort of thing? 
You know, the Tri-Eye program is large enough to have a critical mass of, of peers and advisors and, you know, people who are both in the faculty and administration who can help make those choices and also small enough to feel very personal. So I really felt during that time um, that I was making choices that I could pop in um, even just to have a piece of candy off the bowl on on the desk, you know, at the time, or, or just chat with Ruthie about what was going on or make an appointment to talk with uh, Olaf, Dr. Anderson, about the decisions I was making. I'm, I'm a person who tends to not agonize over choices, um, so I didn't necessarily rely on the program to help me make career decisions as much as I relied on the program to help identify what things were important to do next. Um, so I really appreciated the, um, uh, the, the support on applying for fellowships, the support on understanding how to transition back to the clinic when the time came. Um, in fact, it was the hardest thing about transitioning back to the clinic was feeling like I was a little bit less involved in the MD-PhD program because the PhD part of it was done. Um, and, and then I think the, the fact that I had peers who had already gone on into various medical specialties who I could talk to as I was applying for residency, um, and even now applying, you know, for fellowship and for grants, there's always somebody from the Tri-I list who's, who's done that. Um, and the wonderful thing about Tri-I now is we have social media to communicate with each other. Um, I was a medical student before Facebook, so now you know how old I am. Um, and so we didn't, we didn't have that opportunity. We would, we would email and say, does anybody know anybody who knows anybody who's ever applied for this grant and somebody might know somebody, but now it's so much easier to reach out. So I feel like the family really has extended roots. Yeah, I can definitely, um, testify to that as the person who now handles the, so the official social media from the tri-institutional program. To me, one of the great victories of this podcast is that uh, we have managed to connect some of the people who have been on the show with people who have questions or who identify who like identify strongly with certain aspects of their experience. So um, I can definitely see how that sort of strengthens the relationships that you see between uh, alums or applicants uh, or um, people who are working in the same field. How would you characterize your relationship to either to Try I or to the students that were in your program at, at the same time? as an alum, as someone who has since graduated and is working in the field? I mean, there's no doubt that the training that I got in the Tri-I program is what set me up for success in, in my chosen career. And and my career has morphed over time. Um, I tell people, you never know um, where you're going to be in 20 years. And it's, it's easy to say, I'm an MD-PhD student. I'm going to run a lab and I'm going to do clinics, you know, 20% of the time. And that's the NIH model. But in fact, there are people who are succeeding in so many different models of um, medical research. And some some of my former peers were in um, are in industry now. Some of them are in academia. Some of them are in private practice, but still contributing to their fields. You know, I think it's it's a training in a way of thought that puts you on a path to achieving whatever it is you think can help you be of most service to the medical community. Um, and what I think about 
kind of the nostalgia of being an alumna, I really do identify myself as an alumna of Tri-I more so than of the medical school individually or the graduate school, because that was my group going through. Um, those That was my support network. Those were my people. And, and I think there's a difference between being an MD-PhD than being an MD or a PhD or somebody who's done both individually. There's an integration there that is only possible when you do the joint degree. Um, and Tri-I really supported that for me. The greatest advice that I have for people who are considering an MD-PhD and a career in biomedical research is that this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And at the beginning, you will have short-term goals that you can achieve, and those goals spread out longer and longer as you go on. So try to be motivated by the work itself and not the end result of the work, and you'll have a long and happy career. Great. Uh, Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun. That was another episode of Try iPod, the MD-PhD admissions podcast. Good night, everyone.